This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hi, everyone. I'm Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access, a site dedicated to high-value audio. And I'm Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo, dedicated to headphones. And we're both part of the Soundstage.com network of nine websites specifically devoted to audio. So, Dennis, are we talking about audio today? We are talking about audio. And in fact, we're, we're starting with an article of yours from Soundstage Solo. So you've got a new piece that I want to dig into called Why You Shouldn't Always Rely on Measurements, which I think is going to be kind of a controversial piece. I think maybe that's a headline that's not a lot of people would expect coming from you. So I want to dig deeper into that. We will. And then our next topic is we're going to talk about, you know, a couple weeks ago, Sound United, which owns the brands, uh, many audio brands, including Polk, Denon, Morantz, Class A, Bowers & Wilkins, uh, Definitive Technology, and Boston Acoustics, was bought by Massimo, which is a uh, Japan-based company that specializes in medical equipment. And so we're going to talk about why a medical equipment company bought audio like a high-end audio company and uh we're going to talk about what it means for the future of all those sound united brands a lot of which are really kind of cherished by audiophiles for decades and what's our third topic uh, we're going to talk about uh, the show reports that doug has done on the soundstage global site from the florida audio expo uh it's been oh, it's been a while okay. since uh it's been a while since we've had uh audio shows and uh, yeah. I guess they're coming back. What's interesting is that Doug's last show before the pandemic was the Florida Audio Expo. And two it was his ago. first show. Yeah, two years ago. And it was his, his first show getting back into it. So I think we're going to dig into some stuff from uh, from those reports and see what he had to say. Cool. Yeah, it's going to be some cool stuff. Okay. But um, but hang on. Before we get there, let's let's start with this article of yours. Why you shouldn't always rely on measurements. Okay. Isn't it self-evident? <laughs> Why did I even write this article? You know, that's an interesting question I was going to ask. Have you have you joined the completely subjective? Trust camp? your ears. Have, have you have you said take science and Bennett? Who needs measurements? Is that where, where are you going with this, Brent? I've been I've been paid off by the manufacturers of non-oversampling digital to analog converters. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only explanation that makes sense. But no, the, here's the thing. This this article of yours is is sort of centered on two recent reviews that you've done. The mm -hmm. Sendy Apollo and the Grado yeah. RS2X. Um right. and you've got you've got measurements of both. Mm -hmm. Uh both I I would say deviate significantly from the Harmon curve. But in very different yeah. ways. The Harman curve is, I guess, the closest thing we have to a standard in like headphone frequency response, a, a modern yeah. standard. There have been past standards, but yeah, yeah, they both deviate from from that standard. But yeah, you like one and not the other. Yeah. So and so I, I basically that. and these these reviews are back to back. You can see them on SoundstageSolo.com. So you know, I I, I when I test headphones, normally what I'll do, unless I'm you know, usually I will. 
I will listen to a set of headphones and then I'll run the measurements. A lot of times I'll just, if I'm, sometimes I end up running because I measure a lot of headphones and not just for soundstage. So uh, sometimes I'll run a giant pile of measurements and I don't look all that closely at them. I just do them with my normal method and don't really consider them too much. But, uh, you know, I listen to both of these headphones and I frankly, like the Sendy, I have reviewed some of their headphones and the this particular model just had no, the sort of mid treble, the part that gives you the sort of definition in voices and all the little fricative sounds like that thing, mm-hmm. um, the kind of makes consonants come out is really, it's down, I don't know, 10 decibels or something. It's way down from where it's from the norm. And yeah, so the headphone sounds to me really kind of dead. And whereas, so, and, and, you know, measures like that, it sounds like that. Okay, great. So this Grado though, I mean, you know, and, and I've, I've been listening to Grados for 30 years or so, and they have a reputation for being bright. Some of them are for me just way too bright. And some of them are a little bright, but really nice. And I got this new one in, not knowing what to expect. And I listened to it and it's like, oh, it's bright, but boy, it's doing something different. It's really like, it's giving me this big, you know, sort of more sense of natural space than I normally get from from any kind of headphones. So Grados are a little different from most headphones. They're open back, which means that the backs of the drivers are, you know, exposed to fresh air, so to speak, and they can, you know, breathe in and out. They don't have a little cup behind them. And you don't get they, any of the isolation that you would get from close. Right. Back. There's no isolation. Someone can talk to you right through them and, and you can hear them clearly. But uh, they also have these really, really porous kind of scratchy foam ear pads instead of, you know, big, soft, plush, leathery uh, memory foam ear pads. And so mm-hmm. since the, the ear pads are so porous, they don't really block sound at all. And so the, it's like having a couple of little speakers levitating about you know half an inch from your ear and so it has this big spacious sound and this headphone was the grado rs2x and they're i think 500 bucks and um and they look really retro they look like something that was stolen out of a world war ii radio shack and um (laughs) i mean like the the radio shack like the actual first radio shacks that were like soldiers sat in there and listened to you know whatever they listened to and right so Anyway, these Grados sounded great, but they measure, it, they sound trebly. And, you know, the measurements, it's like, yeah, they're trebly. There's no question about it. There's not much bass. And, but what bass there is sounds really nice and tight. Anyway, so, but it made me kind of ruminate a little bit about how, you know, there are some reviewers, because I think more, there are more people now doing measurements than probably ever before. Mm-hmm. And some of them are, you know, my attitude is like, hey, I'm going to show you the measurements. I'm going to tell you what they mean, but I'm not going to really mostly judge the stuff by the measurements i'm still going to do it by ear but some reviewers out there are basically just doing it by the measurements or saying hey if a if a product doesn't measure according to this standard then it's bad and i've even seen them i've seen them use the phrase failed product it's a failed product if it doesn't measure according to this standard and i know in one case uh a guy was talking about the Odyssey LCD X headphones, which are, you know, really big, uh, open back planar magnetic headphone, audiophile headphone. They're, I think they're somewhere in the mid $1,500 range. And mm-hmm. they've been around for God, five, six, seven years, a long time. And, uh, and they've yeah. been very popular and they don't really conform to the Harman curve. But, you know, so, so I think probably Odyssey would <laughs> would look at his suggestion that it's a failed product and 
and go like, uh, yeah, we sold a zillion of them. We'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, We'll take that over whether or not you (laughs) think it's failed. And so, but my point is that, you know, I, I don't, I, I look, I have worked more than, I, I think more than any other journalist. I have worked with listening panels my whole life and gotten and solicited other people's opinions as much as I possibly could. And I just find that different people like different things. And there's, yeah, if you have a set of Harman Curve headphones, people are probably going to like them. If you have a set of har- non, if you have a set of Grados, a lot of people are going to find them too bright, mm-hmm. but some people will find some good things in there. Obviously, a lot of people buy Grados and it's not because they're somehow misinformed or anything like that. It's because they like that sound. And that is perfectly fine. And to say that something is a failed product because it doesn't meet some standard, well, you know, you could, I, w- I would argue, hey, you look at the, okay, so I did an article about truck stop headphones or earphones that you buy at truck stops for like 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. And you can look at those things and they measure horribly. And at least most of the ones I got got in measured horribly. And they sounded like they were the worst things I ever heard in my 40 plus years of messing with audio gear. I mean, they were just <laughs> unbelievably bad. That's a bold statement. So, however, though, this kind of plays, I, I found it very, very interesting though, because I was over on stereophile.com. And I saw that the editor-in-chief had written an article that was expressing similar sentiments to what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is Jim Austin, and the article is called Thoughts on Reviewing. And um, I just posted, I guess it's in the new issue of Stereophile. And um, there's a lot of things I have problems with in this article that a lot of it's, it's kind of pretending not to be anti-science, but it really is kind of anti-science. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very, very spooky, crystally new age kind of thing, in my opinion. Yeah. So, so, so what he's contending, he said, I'll quote, but what you learn from such research reveals little of interest about any individual in the group. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would, I would, I kind of agree with that in a way, because I know from the listening tests I've done, and I've done hundreds of them with all sorts of people in New York, LA, um, you know, uh, over 30 years and with all sorts of products. And I can tell you that people like different things and, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And, you know, and that's what I find like with these Grados, it's like, I, yeah, they stray from the, the norm, but I still like them. You know, I, I wanted to touch back on something you mentioned about the article, because one person who took issue with that statement was Dr. Sean Olive of Harmon. Um, mm-hmm. He tweeted about this. Um, I'll just read the tweet. He says, one of the misleading statements in this article is that scientific listening tests only report the results of the group, not the individual listener. While the average preferences of the group are reported, often there is analysis of individual listeners presented. And then he goes on to link to this AES paper, which uh, is called Segmentation of Listeners Based on Their Preferred Headphone Sound Quality Profiles, which is really interesting and sort of digs into into this topic that we're discussing. Um, One of the interesting things that I wanted to point out in this paper, it's sort of in the conclusion, basically breaks down all of these groups into three classes of people. Um, And he sort of categorizes them as Harmon target lovers. Mm -hmm. Um, Class two is more bases better. Mm -hmm. And class three is less bases better. Yeah. And what's interesting is I'm sort of looking at this paper and these grados that you reviewed kind of fall into 
the class three, you know, and, and sort of this representative. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. It's sort of, that was the second largest class of, of listeners as far as they categorized them. 21% of listeners preferred less bass with, with a sound profile. That's not wholly dissimilar to the Grados. Yeah. The great, the difference Um, with the Grados I think is it's less bass and more treble mm -hmm. at the same time. So it's, 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 I'm sure it's treblier than anything that, that would pass muster in the blind listening test that Harmon has structured. Mm-hmm. However, you know, there's, as we all know, there's audiophiles who really like that trebly sound because it gives the impression of hearing detail and it also increases mm-hmm. the sense of spaciousness. So tends to, at least depending on the recording, but I just, I don't, you know, look, I write for everybody kind of, and <laughs> I do. I, I mean, I write for people that are just coming in to buy, that th- are just looking for a good set of headphones and to spend, you know, two, three hundred bucks or something. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood what? you. I thought you meant, yeah, you write for every magazine, which I was like, yeah, that tracks. Oh, you. no, I don't. <laughs> I, I have. I have. There are a couple I have not written for, but I've written for most of them. But so for Soundstage Solo, I'm reviewing headphones for everybody. I'm reviewing headphones for the average person that just wants to buy a two or three or even hundred dollar set of headphones that sounds good. And that doesn't want to dig deep into this stuff. But I also review for audio enthusiasts who may have five or six sets of headphones that are all priced over a thousand bucks. And they're looking for their seventh set of headphones priced over a thousand dollars. So, and those people don't want copies of, they don't want the same headphone over and over. They don't want seven Harman curve headphones. Right. Yeah. So I I have to review for everybody. I I think that it's a it's a it would be a dereliction of my duty to say oh, every headphone has to measure according to the standard or it sucks or it's a failed product. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you know, I mean, the, the the thing to point out is, by and large, these standards work. These standards are an absolutely fantastic place to start. They're a great reference, so that if you can, so you can look at my measurements, and I almost always put a headphone that is close to Harman curve in there. So you can see how whatever thing, whatever I review compares to Harman curve, right? Mm-hmm. So you're at least you're an informed buyer. You can stray from it if you want to, if that's your taste, but at least you'll know what you're doing as opposed to, you know, I've seen good reviews of that Cindy headphone. And I mean, how anybody could listen to that and think it's good, I don't know, but obviously they did. I don't distrust their, uh, their sincerity in that. But as soon as you see measurements, then if you do the measurements, you're like, uh, even if I like the headphones, I'd, I'd have to say, hey, look, these are way off the norm. Yeah. And so maybe go hear them before you buy them. Okay. Or, or get them with, you know, with, with a money back guarantee. Can I loop back to something that you said at the beginning of this conversation? If it's something I, if it was something that was smart. Yeah. <laughs> it was something that was brilliant. Um, no, you, you pointed out the fact that for the most part, we do our subjective listening before we see the measurements. And in yeah. my case with soundstage, access we just published my review of monitor audio's new silver 300 7g mm-hmm. seventh generation man i finished my review of those speakers in like october of last year and then they went to the the nrc for measurements and we're just seeing it now the interesting thing is when i was doing that review i would have put my hand on you know my copy of the lord of the rings and swore to you that those things were just dead on balls accurate from 500 hertz to five kilohertz. Mm-hmm. I, just to me, the mid range sounded ruler flat. 
Mm-hmm. Well, we get the measurements back and there's just itty bitty little peak at around three and a half kilohertz. You know, mm-hmm. I wonder, I wonder yes. if I had seen those measurements before I listened to them, would I have heard that tiny little peak? Because in my Quite listening, possibly. in my subjective listening, I didn't hear it. I, I would have told you, nope, these things are ruler flat. I wonder if having seen the measurements, I would have heard that little peak. And whether I would have Quite found possibly. it, you know, and, and noteworthy. So, yeah, well, look, I've been doing this for a long, long, I've been measuring for 20, I've been measuring since 1996, I think. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've gotten to the point now where <laughs> I've just seen so many measurements and heard so much gear that I know it's like, I might see a measurement and go, oh, that's weird. And then, and then listen to the product. But, but by and large, I know what stuff sounds like mm-hmm. and I can tell from the measurements roughly what it sounds like, but I can't always tell how much I'm going to like it. Yeah. And, you know, that little extra boost at 3K, even if you saw it, you might go, I hear it, but I like it. Yeah. Um, whereas if you are only going by the measurements, you're going to, you're going to, if you're really biased by the measurements, you're going to look at that and go, oh, it's got, you're either not really going to listen to it or you're going to listen to it and go, yeah, I hear the 3.5K peak. Just like, you know, it's like the old thing of like a stereo salesman, you know, the, the first rule of stereo sales is tell the listener what they're going to hear. Mm-hmm. And then they tend to hear it. And yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's a problem. Um, luckily enough with headphones, headphones are so wacky and more or less bass in a headphone can just a, a couple dB here and there can really change the sound character of it. Mm-hmm. And so with headphones, I'm just really, I mean, uh, Tyler Hertzens, who's the godfather of headphone reviewing, who used to have the, um, the Interfidelity website. Uh, he told me he's like I, he was the guy. He was the guy who in, almost invented headphone reviewing, and he said, "I can't tell what a headphone sounds like from the measurements." Yeah. So if he couldn't, you know, I can't. Uh, maybe some <laughs> yeah. people think they can, but you look at the Grado measurement, and you're like, you're not going to think this is going to be a bass monster. There's just no way. Right. But you still don't know a hundred. And and look, I can look at the measurements of those truck stop earphones, and like you can just look at those and know they are going to suck. They're going to suck bad. <laughs> Yeah, because they're so far off the norm. But if it's in between sucking real bad and harming curve, <laughs> then it's a little harder to predict whether or not you're going to like the headphones. I have to say, I was being facetious in the introduction to this because I, I was not surprised by this article at all. But I think some people will be because I, th- I think some people would uh, paint a caricature of your of you. Uh, yeah. as someone who just only cares about the measurements and, you know, I've always known that was BS, but you know, I think this, I think still there are some people who are going to read this and be surprised. So there are a lot of high end audio writers who have, who have never read my work, who, who insist that all I care about is measurements. It's like, you've never read a single review I've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> it's obvious. But yeah. anyway, I think we should move on to the next topic and take a little break here and come back and we will, uh, We will be two audio writers talking about what they know best, corporate business. (laughs) See you on the other side. Soundstage Audiophile Podcast in true living stereo. Soundstage.com. 
I guess we decided we're not doing the sense around thing, huh? No, not yet. <laughs> give us time. Give us time. Here, I'll give you sense around. Is that coming through? Not really. <laughs> That's like the airplanes taking off at Midway. You can't hear the, the thump on the mic? I can hear it, but it's not sense around. It's not that 1.1, 1. Okay. 1, you know? Yeah. All right. We're going we're gonna to put some sense around in this thing. So anyway, uh, the next article we're going to discuss is on strategy.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-A hyphen G-E-E.com. And this is the, in my view, the best website about the audio business. It's just about the audio business. It's not about, you know, headphones or you know, stuff like that. And it's done by a guy named Ted Green, who was kind of like the head honcho at Onkyo USA for, I don't know, 15 years or something. Mm -hmm. Go check it out if you want to get into the business side of audio. Um, uh, the article is titled Sound United Acquired by Medical Products Maker Massimo Corp in $1 billion deal. So what happened here is Sound United, which is the parent company of Polk, Denon, Definitive Technology, Bowers and Wilkins, uh, Morantz, Class A, uh, Class A, Boston Acoustics, you know, a lot of leading, you know, kind of legendary high-end audio brands was bought by Massimo. And Massimo is a company that makes medical products. So they make, uh, you know, like, like medical technology products, not like, you know, I don't know, band-aids. They make, uh, you know, pulse rate monitoring and oxygen saturation uh, uh, monitors and all sorts of really like high-tech medical stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's, a. I think this, this happened, what, two weeks ago? And it caught a lot of people in the audio industry by surprise. You know, it's, uh, I think most people did not see the synergy here at all. And frankly, I'm not, I'm still not sure I do. Yeah. I don't see the synergy, but I have to say, I'm not surprised, <laughs> you know, why not? Well, it's just, uh, you know, our industry, we've seen a lot of this in the past couple of decades with companies with, with no real skin in the audio game buying big audio companies yeah uh, more often than not granted it, it's it's uh you know capital investment firms and things like that but yeah still i guess i'm not too shocked when a completely non-audio related company buys an audio related company it, it's still weird you know just not shocking it, it is weird and and i think you know my first thought was you know okay okay well i'll just say ted you know i, I would trust ted's judgment <laughs> over mine it's in matters of business yeah <laughs> like a hundred percent um, so he's, he's saying that the quote unquote cloud connected home ecosystem is a significant element of the sound United offer that attracted Massimo. Mm -hmm. So, uh, cause Massimo is involved in hospital and home monitoring. And since sound United is already, uh, you know, cloud connected through like the Heos technology and stuff that Denon has, you know, they already have some technology that connects to the internet and then i guess probably also since you know these brands are in a lot of retail stores i mean they're in you know best buy and places like that mm -hmm. um and i guess amazon. they kind of thought like yeah. well that yeah amazon of course uh, i guess they thought that gives them kind of a, a a means of distribution to some different networks i mean i actually thought for my first thought was okay they're gonna make uh hearables you know like a you know, some of these new hearing aid type products that are coming out and different health sensors and things like that. And of course, a sensor, like a vibration sensor is an audio product effectively. Mm -hmm. And so, 
I guess I think I thought maybe they were going to take some of Sound United's technology and audio expertise and apply it to that. But then I thought like there's companies they could have bought. They could have bought New Hero, which makes these really good um, like four hundred dollar quasi hearing aid things um, that are like they're like Bluetooth earbuds except they have a hearing aid function to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could have bought New Hero for a lot less than you know uh, uh, what was it a billion bucks. Yeah. So. I, I'm still I'm still a little baffled, but then again, you know, I don't run a giant corporation, so. Uh, but you know, I what what did Audiophile say about this though? Well, I don't know that they've said much, have they? I I don't know. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of speculation that this is just going to ruin everything. But uh, the truth is, we don't we don't really know yet, do we? We don't know if well, Sound United. I, I've is... seen a lot of speculation. Okay, well, I haven't. So yeah. you tell me what speculation have you seen? Okay, well, that's because I'm I'm a frequent Facebook. Uh, <laughs> I follow you know Doug Schneider, our our leader, our founder, and and. Uh, president and CEO or whatever he is of, of <laughs> the soundstage network. Um, he has a very active Facebook feed and he's discussing this stuff. And a lot of people were chiming in, like, you know, thinking like, Oh, this is the end of Bowers and Wilkins and, you know, Bowers and Wilkins for anybody who doesn't know is a storied, uh, uh, UK brand of loudspeakers and also now headphones and some other things that goes back to, I guess the fifties. Yeah. And Probably early, now, probably early sixties. I, I can't remember for sure, but you know they're famous for the B and W eight hundred one speakers with the Kevlar, the yellow Kevlar drivers, and they were like a big deal for audiophiles ever since the sixties or seventies or whenever. Very closely associated with uh, Abbey Road, indeed. Yeah, yeah, they are used. I think they're still used at Abbey Road. They're used in a lot of mastering studios. Uh, they they have been kind of the reference speakers for classical mastering. Uh, like classical music mastering, sort of forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so audiophiles are very attracted to that. And I think they think that, uh, oh, if some big corporation and a bunch of accountants buy Bowers and Wilkins, it's going to mess everything up. Well, here's my and, question to them uh, then. Why didn't it happen all the other times Bowers and Wilkins was purchased? <laughs> you know, I think it's been purchased twice before. It was purchased by the group that kind of combined it with Rotel and all that. Mm-hmm. Am I, do I have that right? And Or at least the U.S. side of it was bought by them. And then that was bought by, there was like a technology group up in Silicon Valley that bought it and really clearly didn't know what to do with it. And then Sound United bought it. And now, and you know, I I think it's kind of, at least since Sound United's had it, it seems to be back to its old tricks, you know, of doing, you know, a combination of the classical designs and some new things, you know, they, they've always got new headphones and, and, uh, uh, wireless speakers and things like that coming out. So I don't, you know, I'm, but you know, you just never know. I mean, you point out, you know, like a lot of this is by venture capital people and like venture capital people bought Teal Audio, which is a really famous high-end audio manufacturer. And it was dead about three years later. Right. And I mean, it was just, it just, they just ran it straight into the ground. And then you find like there's legendary brands like say AR that was that, that Henry Close founded with uh, Edgar Filcher, you know, back in the fifties and, you know, made the first acoustic suspension speakers and was this legendary brand. And then International Jensen bought them and they farmed out the design to some British guys. Then they gave the design to uh, uh, Ken Cantor and Chris Byrne, who were the founders of NHT. And then they gave it to Kerry Christie, who was one of the co-founders of Infinity. Mm-hmm. And all those people made good speakers. They were radically different speakers, but they're all good. Uh, and But now the AR brand is applied to like really, really cheap, plasticky, junky 
uh, outdoor speakers that have like a light built into them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and they're on like really, you know, cheap audio cables. It's just an accessories brand at this point. And so I think a lot of people worry that, you know, Bowers and Wilkins in, you know, 10 years down the road might be applied to you know, $25 Bluetooth speakers or who knows what. Yeah. Um, whatever the whipping boy for audio technology <laughs> is 10 years from now. <laughs> yeah. Closer to my heart, uh, you know, Paradigm, Anthem, Martin Logan, you know, they were purchased by a private equity firm back, what was it, maybe 15, 16 years ago? Yeah. Um, you know, what's funny, though, is the sort of the core focus of Paradigm in particular, they never really got off track during that era, but they did venture into some interesting side projects. They introduced Paradigm Shift, which was sort of a sub-brand that was focused on, you know, earbuds and wireless headphones and things like that. And they never did a super great job of that in my opinion yeah. but you know that's just yeah, my no, opinion um but then you know scott bagby uh who's the co-founder purchased the company back in in 2019 and and again i don't want to say it was a course correction because the core of paradigm was always there they never lost their core identity they just sort of piddled around at the margins of some stuff that wasn't core to their identity. But but yeah, I mean, now they're now they're back being owned by the co-founders. So, I mean, the thing is, we, we really don't know. I mean, I guess that's what I'm trying to say in a rambling roundabout way. We we don't know what's going to happen to, to no, and, you know, I mean, I, I hope nothing much. But yeah, I hope so, too, because I'm a pretty big fan of Polk and Definitive Technologies. So, uh, and, you know, B&W certainly makes a lot of stuff that is that is way worthy of a look. But you know, I just I always say. I think I always say this. Have I always said this? Any company is is one consultant away from making good products and one misguided VP away from making bad products. <laughs> I've never heard so, you say that, but you just did. Well, so it's on I record. Have yeah. Said it. Yeah. So now it's on record and I used to be a consultant, so I know. And <laughs> I've seen what happens many times. And, you know, it's like if you hire a good consultant and trust them, you will have good product. Hey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and if you if you have some VP in there who doesn't know audio who comes in and decides that this should sound like this, yeah, you're probably in trouble. But so uh, hire good consultants and trust them. I hate to speculate here because it, it never you know what it never works well for. You anybody. love to speculate. Well, that's true. I do love to speculate. Okay. I hate to speculate on record out loud for everybody to judge me. But okay. um, you know, one of the things I wonder is if, as is being reported, they're really after the connected technology and the major connection with the major retailers. I'm wondering if we might see this new entity spin off more audiophile focused brands like Class A, like Bowers and Wilkins, maybe. I don't know. And sort of keep the, maybe. the core of Denon, Morantz, Polk, uh, Definitive, things like that. Things that have more. I mean, look, you know, my normie friends who are not into this at all, they all know Denon and Morantz. Mm -hmm. You know, it's basically when they come to me and they yeah. want to set up a home theater, it's kind of like, should I buy the Denon or the Morantz? And I'm like, yeah, have you considered the Anthem? And they're like, huh, the what? <laughs> so, so, you know, everybody knows yeah. those brands, but I wonder if we might see them spin off things like Class A, which which are lesser known. It's possible, but you know, I, I, I another thing I always say, um, 
because I've been acquired many times uh, in the many jobs that I've had. Mm-hmm. And um, you, uh, you know, uh, corporate acquisitions are like marriages and war. You just don't know what you're getting into. Yeah. You really can't tell until you're in there. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and they all, and every time they make an acquisition, they always make all these promises. <laughs> they don't keep any of them. Yeah. So, by and large, it's pretty rare. Yeah. But there are some corporate acquisitions that have worked out well. JBL has been owned by, well, James B. Lansing, um, Harmon, um, and then uh, uh, Samsung, Samsung bought Harmon. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, JBL has only gotten better. That's true. So. Well, I think that's as know. good enough a place to transition to the next topic. So why don't we take a break and um, see you on the other side. That sounds good. To the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I'm Brent Butterworth. And uh, for our final segment, we are going to be digging into the show coverage from our founder, Doug Schneider, of the Florida Audio Expo, which just happened last month. Um, interesting about this, it's sort of a sort of a monumental thing. Uh, the Florida Audio Expo 2020 was the last trade show that Doug attended before the pandemic hit. And it was really his first uh first audio show after the pandemic sort of started to wind down as we get into the endemic stage. Um, but instead yeah, and of Doug is a total maniac for audio shows. I have to add, <laughs> like Doug goes to everything. That's true. He does. Um, I think instead of recounting the coverage, which everybody should go read for themselves at soundstageglobal.com, I thought it might be interesting if we just sort of pass back and forth a couple of the cool things that we're seeing in his coverage that we sort of wish we could hear in person. Maybe we will one day when we start going back to shows. But yeah. yeah can I just can I just jump in? Can I can I jump in with real quick and just say for people who haven't been to these audio shows, it usually takes place in a hotel. And they take all the all or most of the furniture out of the hotel rooms and they put these audio systems in. They'll put like some folding chairs and stuff. And so each company has one or maybe two rooms. And you go in there, you can listen to different audio systems. So you can go listen to 50 systems in the course of a day with no problem. And you can really hear a giant range of equipment all the way from relatively affordable stuff all the way up to, you know, there'll probably be a hundred thousand dollar pair of speakers at most of these things you can go listen to with really, you know, fancy amplifiers. So these audio shows are just an absolutely great thing to go to. If you're into audio, or even if you're just barely interested in audio, they're not expensive to go to. And they now take place kind of all over the country. Mm -hmm. So check them out. I think the great thing about them is that, you know, look, when I was growing up, you could go to, I mean, gosh, I'm in Montgomery, Alabama, and there were at least four or five shops that I could go to and sit when I was in my teens. I could drive over to, uh, you know, Circuit City, for goodness sake. That's where I heard my first pair of Martin Logan speakers. There's um, Cohen's Electronics, where you could hear all of this. uh, You know, that was the first place I ever heard uh, definitive technology speakers. And there's, you don't have that anymore. (laughs) I can't think of anywhere that I could really go and sit down in a chair and listen to a stereo setup anymore. So these, these audio shows are great for that. And I think they're becoming where a lot of enthusiasts sort of audition gear 
you know? And they should. You know, it's it's so much easier. You can hear so much stuff than going into a dealer. And as you point out, dealers are becoming much rarer. And it's it's also totally low pressure. You just walk in, listen, don't like it, leave. If you like it, you can stay for a long time and you can probably bring them some stuff to play and they might play it. Mm-hmm. And or you can request things because you know a lot of them are just on on like Cobuzz or something now or title. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the manufacturers are are, you know, and sometimes it's dealers doing it. Uh they're they're trying to make you happy and put on a good show. There's no pressure at all. So so what did Doug uh, what was Doug talking about at this show? And did anybody actually show up for this thing? Apparently quite a few people did show up. The numbers were what similar to 2020? Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, by and large it seems to have been a success. But what I want to ask you, Brent Butterworth, mm-hmm. is is there anything in Doug's coverage that stood out to you that you're like, damn, I wish I could have heard that. Well I'm a speaker guy. And so mm-hmm. and you know, I'm a lot more curious about hearing speakers that are a little outside the norm than, you know, some speaker with a eh, six and a half inch woofer and a three inch mid range and a one inch tweeter. It's like, you know, if you don't screw up the crossover, it's going to sound pretty good. But, uh, I like to see it when people can do something with some designs that are out of the ordinary, uh, and make them sound good or bad, you know? So one of them he talks about is from a company called Think Team. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a company that's run by a very famous uh, European speaker designer named Karl Heinz Fink, who I had the pleasure of meeting at the uh, Munich show a couple of years ago and chatting with. And so he's got he designs for a lot of companies, but he's got his own company. And uh, they launched a speaker that is uh, it's got an eight inch woofer and it's got a four point three three inch air motion transformer, which is this sort of yellow uh, pleated ribbon driver that's in a lot of speakers now as the tweeter. It's, I think it's the biggest air motion transformer I've seen. I've never um, heard of one that big. And so it's, a, it's, it's pretty weird that it's an 8-inch woofer crossed over to this ribbon. Normally, you might have a mid-range driver in there. And they are 12800 a pair, so, you know, rush right out. But um, there's another one right below it, which is kind of similar in ways. It's from a company called Graham Audio, which is a a very kind of traditional UK-based speaker company whose products look like they were made, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Really super traditional, standard rectangular box designs. And they too have a new speaker. It's a three-way with an eight-inch woofer and I think a three and a half inch mid and and a one-inch tweeter. Here's the big difference. It's called the LS8-1 and it looks really cool, and I would really love to hear it because it really just has that retro look of those British speakers that were all made for the – most of these things were actually originally designed by the BBC mm-hmm. for use in audio production. And so these, some of these designs date back forever. So anyway, uh, the Fink loudspeaker with the 8-inch woofer crosses over at 2200 hertz. All right? And bear with me here. Uh, this is going to mean something in a second. So the crossover – so the woofer hands off to the tweeter at 2200 hertz. Now – the Graham audio speaker, that 8-inch woofer hands off to the mid-range driver at 3.5 kilohertz. Mm-hmm. So the difference there, the, the interesting thing is a lot of audio aficionados don't know. The bigger the driver it is, the more directional it is at high frequencies. And the idea of a crossover is to get the big driver out of the path, you know, to cut that big driver off before it starts to get directional. And then it starts to beam and it starts to sound like this, right, which is generally bad. That's called cupped hands uh, coloration. So you can tell where a driver starts to beam by taking the diameter, right? Mm -hmm. And the audio wavelength that corresponds to that diameter is the frequency at at where it's going to start to beam. It doesn't like, it's not like it switches from a a big fan spray to a 
a tight beam instantly. It's a it's a very gradual thing, but that's where it starts to have problems. So for an eight inch woofer, you got you, you got about a seven inch actual active diaphragm on an eight inch woofer. So a seven inch diaphragm starts to beam at about nineteen hundred hertz. Mm. So with the Graham speaker, though, the 8-inch speaker is running all the way up to 3.5 kilohertz. You know, with the, with the Fink one, it's 2200, so it's, it's about where it needs to be, I guess. But with the Graham, it's running much higher. And so my thought is, if I listen to that speaker, I would hear cupped hands coloration. And that's why I want to hear it, because maybe not. Some people are able to do high crossovers and pull it off through the you know different driver designs and things like that. I mean, John DeVore of, of DeVore Fidelity that you may be familiar with, a high-end audio brand that's all made in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, he does uh, you know big woofers, seven-inch woofers with one-inch tweeters, and he gets them to measure really beautifully, and they're crossed over right where they need to be, and he won't tell me how he does it. <laughs> but, but he accomplishes it. And so uh, it can be done, but it's like, that's what I, usually when I go to shows, I'm looking for the, you know, if I see a standard two-way speaker, three-way, you know, I'm like, yeah, fine, I'll go listen to it. But the ones where I think it might not work are the ones I want to go listen to because then I'm delightfully surprised or not. Yeah. (laughs) I think the the speakers that piqued my interest the most in Doug's coverage were these new tower speakers from a company called Perlisten. Uh, They have the R7T tower speakers, which Mm -hmm. are... What's special about them? Well, these are a more affordable version of a flagship tower speaker by the company called the S7T. Um, But what's interesting about them is they have this, what's called a DPC array. And DPC stands for Directivity Pattern Control. Basically, it's it's three tweeters stacked okay. and sort of angled in a concave thing. I, I originally became interested in in this array uh, because of the company's center channel speakers. You know, I'm I'm a big home theater guy, and one of the problems, of course, as you know, with a lot of center speaker designs, is they will have a tweeter stuck between two mid range drivers. And it's it's called MTM, mid, tweeter, mid. Yeah. The problem that a lot of times can be caused by that, depending on the spacing mm-hmm. of those drivers, is you have what's called the picket fence effect, um, where basically you move your head just a little bit back and forth, and it sounds like you're listening to the audio through a picket fence. It'll become brighter and darker, brighter and darker, and brighter and darker. The, 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 the horizontal dispersion of center channels yeah. is oftentimes not very good because basically they take a speaker design that was intended to be vertical and they lie it horizontal. So all of a sudden, then your dispersion is really going vertical instead of horizontal as it should. And this company, Perlisten, uses this array and their center speakers to create good wide horizontal dispersion. And and that is also used in these new tower speakers, these R7Ts. Um, what's interesting is the speaker that I think they're based on, the S7T, they use um, beryllium dome tweeter in the middle and then carbon fiber tweeters above and below. Mm-hmm. Whereas this new one, the R7T, uses um, silk dome uh, for all three. And it brings huh. the price down from like 18,000 a pair to like 9,900 a pair or something like that. Wow. There may be other differences in the speakers, but yeah, the, the main things that stood out to me were, yeah, instead of beryllium and carbon fiber, you're using silk domes. And I, and I, and, oh, and they use pulp fibers for the woofers instead of what looks to be carbon fiber oh. as well. <laughs> but that sometimes sounds better, but whatever. Anyway. Yeah, a lot better. But yeah, um, it's like I said, I originally became interested in this company from a home theater angle because it, it's a neat approach to 
you know, a lot of times what companies do with, with really good center channel designs is they'll stick the tweeter on top of the mid, but they're doing something a little different here. And I want to hear it, man. I want to hear what it sounds like. Wasn't there some subwoofer you were talking about? Subwoofer-ish thing? Yeah, there was. Now, Jug was joined by one of our new writers, Jason Davis, um, at the show. And he had coverage of, uh, it's, it's from a company called RJS Acoustics. And they have what's called the MD2 Bass Augmentation Speaker System or BASS. Um, and apparently this company does not like to be called a subwoofer company. Subwoofer bad. <laughs> so they're making these tower speakers that are passive. In other words, you have to add your own amplifier, which in mm-hmm. most cases with subwoofers, the amplifier is built in along with DSP and all sorts of other things. Um, but these, are, you would basically just have to have an amplifier driving them like you would another pair of speakers. And they were paired with uh, MagnaPan speakers, which are not uh, very well known for their low frequencies. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, it's um, you and I had a conversation about this before. Like, what is a subwoofer? I don't. I don't know if they're shying away from that terminology because they don't consider themselves technically a subwoofer, or if they just realize that a lot of audiophiles have sort of negative impressions of subwoofers, at least in a two-channel context. So, but it's an interesting question. You're the subwoofer guru. What the heck is a sub? Woofer, Brent. Well, I don't know. I, I you know, I, you could say, I, I would say probably a subwoofer is a speaker that goes below 40 hertz. Mm-hmm. 41 hertz is the lowest note on a, on a standard electric bass or a, a, or a, a, or an upright bass. Mm-hmm. And so in, um, in most music, there's not a whole lot of energy below 40 hertz. But if you want to reproduce stuff that's below, so most woofers, and like a six and a half inch woofer can get down there. But if you need to go below that, a subwoofer is something that can go down to like 20 hertz and can reproduce pipe organ tones and synthesizer bass and, you know, dead mouse and movie soundtracks. You know, they have a lot of boom crash kind of things, cannon fire, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, but this thing is, uh, so it's two, it's two boxes and each box has two six and a half inch woofers. So those are- Ported. Ported. Is it ported? Yeah. Okay. Um, but those are not going to go super- They might go super low, depending on how they're tuned, but they're not going to have a lot of output. In other words, you can tune a little woofer depending on the way you do the acoustics of the box. You can tune it to get pretty low. However, that little woofer is only going to move so far. So if you try to pound a thousand watts into it, it's going to just not happen. It's going to distort really badly. So my guess is that these things really don't have that kind of shake thing they probably aren't what you want for pipe organs but they're not intended for that like they show them with these magnapan these little magnapan speakers and magnapan is a big flat panel speaker and a lot of audiophiles absolutely love them and they have for decades and but they make a little speaker that's like seven or eight hundred bucks that they show here and which obviously doesn't have panel speakers don't have much bass anyway typically but these really don't have any bass because they're little panel speakers mm-hmm. but the problem is sometimes blending a big muscular subwoofer with these little delicate speakers is hard and i think they've really tried to design something here that will blend with a, a more you know an, an, an audiophile speaker like these magnapans or who knows what and try to get like a nice smooth more you know f- for one of a better word musical sound in other words so the bass doesn't go buh, 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 buh. the bass you know goes buh, 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 right <laughs> so the bass is kind of tight and stuff which yeah granted with some home theater subs it's not necessarily because they're tuned a little more for output than for sort of precision and definition but these are more obviously for more definition however you know 
if you're a pipe organ or synth based guy, you're not going to, this is probably not going to cut it. I would guess, knowing what I've heard from six and a half inch woofers and measured from them, but whatever. What do you think about it? I think, well, I think a couple of things about it. I mean, one, I, I do think more two channel guys would benefit from having subwoofers or, you know, some form of bass augmentation in their systems. No question. Instead, look, there, there are not a lot of rooms where a big three-way tower with, you know, low frequency extension down to 30 Hertz can be properly placed for the best you know, bass reproduction. And I think, uh, you know, taking some of the bass away from your main speakers and putting them in these boxes, I, I think that's a good, potentially a good thing. I think this is, I think these are also probably going to be easier to position than most subwoofers because of their form factor. That's, that's, they're shaped more like a tower speaker. So you don't have this, you know, big, perfect cube that you have to place somewhere. I I think they'd be a little easier to place. Maybe, I don't know. I, I, I'm intrigued and I want to hear them. And if, if nothing else, I hope they sort of are a a gateway to, to low frequency reinforcement for, for two channel guys. Now, however, how do you feel about, so it's a passive subwoofer and you got to have your own amp for it. And the amp needs to have a crossover built Mm -hmm. into it to, so the subwoofers aren't reproducing voices. Right. So the, I see on, so Doug also mentioned those in his reports and uh, they're recommending that you use this Dayton audio SA 1000 subwoofer amplifier, which I think is like a few hundred bucks <laughs> as a built-in crossover. How do you feel about that? Kind of Dayton audio amplifier reproduced, you know, audiophile grade sound? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I think a bigger concern for me is, look, most of the, the, most of the amplifiers that are built into subwoofers and and you could speak to this way more intelligently than I could, but just from my own perspective, you know, they're not just amplifiers, they're DSP amplifiers and they have limiters built in and, you know, losing that, I think you're losing something (laughs) potentially pretty major because those amplifiers are, they're tuned specifically to the performance characteristics of that driver in that cabinet you know with that porter without that porter what have you and they have different eq modes depending on whether you've plugged one of the ports or not Uh, so you know in an ideal world no i want a subwoofer as a completely integrated system and you know i i think it's also probably easier to apply room correction to but you know if these are if these are a gateway then i think they're pretty yeah. awesome and you know so. and they have they do have a, a parametric eq built into that amplifier it's a 500 dollars amplifier oh so they have a parametric eq that. built into it so mm-hmm. it so you can you know notch out like the most troublesome if you have like one big booming frequency which a lot of rooms do mm-hmm. you can notch it out and uh obviously this is not like some super high end amplifier or anything but it's a thousand watts and uh, you know, class D. Oh no, it's class AB. There's no way it's a thousand watts. Oh, interesting. Um, I must have read something wrong there. Uh, well, it's a big mystery. Well, look, man, if they've if they've if they've got a parametric EQ, I mean, look, that's yeah, seventy five percent of what you could ever need room correction for, anyway. So, yeah, there you go. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and 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 you know, and they have a crossover built in, so you can you know filter the the higher frequencies out of the sub, and um, you know, it's. It's perfectly fine. It's just that, you know, you got an extra box sitting there that you got to deal with, but you know, it, it, it might make your, you know, then you don't have to run 
line level interconnect cables all the way to your subwoofer. You can just run the speaker cables, which is a little easier and a lot easier to put into walls and things like that if you are so inclined. Oh, absolutely. Um, so maybe it has some advantages. I think it's kind of refreshing that these high-end audio dudes are using the Dayton Audio Amp. Mm-hmm. So, because, uh, you know, it's not like, look, come on, man, it's a subwoofer. It's not like there's all these subtleties that can only be, you know, perceived by blah, 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 whatever. It's like, it's an amplifier. This is this thing delivers power to the subwoofer and any differences you might hear or think you hear between amplifiers are just not relevant. What's relevant here is power, 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 power. Well, we talked about this back in the first episode, the, the sort of uh, audible threshold for distortion in yeah. subwoofers is shockingly high. <laughs> you know, but, you've got to get a lot of distortion in the sub before you really start yeah. to hear it. However, so. one advantage you have with subs that have a built-in amplifier is that presumably, and in probably every, in very few cases I haven't seen this, and I've measured hundreds of subwoofers, um, the manufacturer will adjust the limiter so that you are not going to blow up the speaker by turning it up too loud. Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing, because with typical subwoofers on the market, you can turn them up as loud as you want. But the limiter is going to clamp down on that thing. And so you're not going to, you're unlikely to damage the woofer. Whereas with this, you know, that's a lot of power to be thrown at six and a half inch woofers. I hope they're good woofers. I'm sure they're good. Pretty sure. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, they look pretty beefy. I do wish they had specs. I wish they had specs on their website because we don't really know anything about low frequency extension. Yeah. Which I, I mean, I guess that's the main spec I want to know. But well, and see, yeah, well, I, they, and I, <laughs> I want to see the CEA twenty ten subwoofer output measurements, which tells you in decibels like how many how many decibels a subwoofer puts out at different frequencies. Because six and a half inch woofers, uh, I think I've measured one sub that was two six and a half inch woofers. I probably measured a bunch, but one comes to mind. It was a rel. Oh, it was like a lifestyle sub, and you mounted it on the wall. It was an incredibly cool design, but it was a it was a relatively little sub with two six and a halfs and I think a ten inch passive radiator. And it just had like no output at, at twenty hertz, almost no output at twenty five hertz, really not that much at like thirty one and a half hertz, which is the next measurement point. And it just couldn't do home theater at all. Really, it just couldn't do, mm-hmm. and it couldn't do even like loud music. It's like you could only add it if you wanted like a little extra bass. Yeah. Which owners of Magnapans may just want a little extra bass. Sure. Um, and these things are bigger. These things are bigger. And I, it looks like they will probably put out more than that. They're a lot bigger. And so it's likely they'll put out, I would just take a wild guess and say they're, they're probably good for an extra six decibels over that, that rel. It was the rel habitat one. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, and plus that had like a 150 watt class AB amp in it, which was not that much power for a subwoofer. So we'll see. I don't know. You know, I hope somebody reviews them for soundstage. That would be really cool. Yeah, that would be really cool. Probably Maybe a, it'll be you. Uh, it might be me, depending on how much they cost. How much do these things cost? Oh, like twenty five hundred a pair, I think. Not, I mean, so they're expensive, but they're not. They're not insane. Oh yeah, I can do that for access. And then you get the amplifier, and um, it looks like a good product for you to review. Yeah. I think you should do it. Maybe I should. Now watch somebody else from Soundstage go grab it when they hear this. But <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're doing that. Yeah, I think that's as good a place as any to wrap it up for this week, Brent. What is this show that we've been listening to? This has been the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, hosted by me, Dennis Berger. And me, Brent Butterworth. And we are coming to you in true 
stereo. Yeah, maybe we should do 2.1. Give them an LFE channel. At least, if we're not going to do look, sense we're, we're, we're going to do. We're going to definitely do some way stupider stuff with the sound than we've been doing. There's no question. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah. Who did the music for this episode, Brent? Uh, I did the music, assisted by my friends Ron Seiger and Dan Gonda, mm-hmm. and who uh, produced and mixed and whatever this thing. <laughs> well, I think you would call me the uh, engineer and editor. Um, and I'm the mixer. And we should also say we're we're a production of the Soundstage Network, which you can find at soundstage.com. Yeah, check it out. There's a lot, a lot, lot, lot of stuff to read about audio on there. Yeah. Is there anything else left to say? All right. Well, I, I, I guess we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's 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 it. That's I think we're good. And, and now you're going to add some music to to kind of segue into whatever we segue into, into whatever people's next podcast they listen to is. I'm already hearing it in my head. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Good. <laughs> excellent. All right. We'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye.